Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Robert Keeley, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? Good, good. Glad to have you on. And uh, this will be, I think, an exciting interview for listeners to the podcast. Uh, Robert Keeley, I'll give you a moment here to share a brief bio about yourself. But before I do that, uh, there was an article I came across that I've shared on this podcast before that's titled Faith Development and Faith Formation, More Than Just Ages and Stages. Uh, Robert, you're the author of that. It's a wonderful, wonderful article. I wonder if you might just start us off just giving us a little bit of, of background about who you are. Well, thanks, Bill, and thanks for inviting me to uh, to be on your podcast. I really appreciate that. I'm a professor at Calvin College, a college in the um, Reformed tradition of Christianity located in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Calvin is owned by the Christian Reformed Church, although um, more than half of our students uh, come from other Christian denominations. We have a few students who aren't committed Christians, but for the most part, they are. Uh, I grew up in the Christian Reformed Church in northern New Jersey, and I'm a graduate of Calvin College as well as of the University of Colorado and the University of Denver. I taught math for 20 years, uh, which was uh, a lot of fun. I enjoyed doing that. But while I was doing that, I got an interest in working with gifted kids. Uh, so first I got a master's in math education and started doing some teaching um, of math at the University of Colorado in the evenings while I was teaching middle school during the day. So that was an interesting contrast. And uh, and then I got a Ph.D. in educational psychology. Uh, soon after that, we moved to uh, Michigan, where I started uh, teaching in a high school and also working with the K-12 gifted program. And uh, I, I saw some an article that mentioned faith development uh, theory, something that hadn't been part of my ed psych doctorate. But as I started looking into it, I realized that I had all of the background to understand that information. This was about uh, 25 years ago. And so I started uh, reading that. At the same time, my wife and I became directors of children's ministries at our church in Holland, Michigan. And uh, and I just sort of followed uh, God's leading as he took me further and further into this world of understanding faith formation and of uh, and of how people grow in their faith and learn. And so uh, about uh, eight years after moving to Michigan, I took a position at Calvin College where I teach uh, educational psychology, curriculum and instruction, and I teach the course in teaching religion to children and adolescents. I now also work at Calvin Theological Seminary. I'm their director of distance learning. So it's been an interesting journey. Uh, my wife and I still do our work in our home church. She has uh, done a lot of writing with me, and uh, we have four grown children, and uh they are uh, all involved in ministry as well, in one sort or another. So we have a full life, and God has taken us on quite an interesting journey. Wow, what a life of service. I, uh, I appreciate hearing all of that. And it is interesting to hear how you got into some of this uh, 
the studying and uh, and teaching of uh, development theories of faith. And it, and I'll say too, the listeners of this podcast, they are very familiar, I think, with Fowler, James Fowler's stages of faith, and and they may have even dabbled in some of the other uh, theories out there, such as Perry's scheme of cognitive and ethical development. And I just wonder, maybe just start us off with this idea of stages of faith. In what ways are they useful? And and maybe even ask, in what ways should we not really use these, if that makes sense? Right. Um, why don't I start with uh, with how how they're not useful? Uh, we want to be careful not to uh, overanalyze individuals. I, I think it's uh, stages like this are really helpful for us um, to to realize that there are people in different places in their state in their faith journey and. Uh, especially those of us who are in ministry, to to be aware of the fact that people are in, in different places and to talk about what those places are like. So uh, to recognize that people who are in this age, age group often find themselves uh, acting like this or asking these sorts of questions, that sort of thing. I think it's least helpful when we say, oh, um, you know, Amy is clearly in this stage because I think that oversimplifies uh, Amy's situation and it uh, – it, it runs the risk of, of us uh, ministering to a type instead of ministering to a person. So we want to be careful that this is uh, descriptive uh, for groups and really helpful for uh, for doing sort of uh, large decisions on a ministry basis and not quite as helpful for individuals. Yeah, and I and I wanted to see too. In what ways is the, are these theories helpful? Uh, well, they're they're helpful because they uh, can also help us understand that some things that happen are pretty typical. Um, it, it also, I think, is helpful for us to to understand how our faith grows and develops. And so, uh, for for me, as I look back on my life, I can see that certain things in some of the that some of these stages described were exactly what I experienced, and I saw that in my children. There are other places. I say no. Nope, that's a little bit different. So I've got this uh, this child who's who's acting in a way that I wouldn't quite anticipate, but uh, but that's okay. Uh, the exceptions uh, prove the rule, by which I mean the exceptions test the rule, and that helps us understand uh, where these things work well and where they don't. Good, good. I love hearing that. And uh, I want to start off. I want to skip for the sake of this discussion, those first two stages that Fowler goes into and that you kind of talk about in this Ages and Stages uh, article. But I want to kind of go to what Fowler terms stage three, which which is kind of a, a black and white stage. But I think you make a really good observation in your article, and it's something that, that as I read the article, I go, yes, that's it. That's another part of this. Because I often thought stage three to stage four is simply black and white thinking into kind of more of a nuanced approach. But what you also picked up on is this idea of authority, and that authority in stage three tends to be very intrinsic. Would you mind speaking for just a moment about about that connection? Sure. Um, I, I like to tell a story. I don't know if I used this, that, that article or not. I haven't read it just recently. But I, I think about um, when uh, my middle daughter, Meredith, uh, was a college freshman. So uh, she went to Calvin. So I was uh, in my office one day. She was in her dorm. I think it's like October for freshman year. So she's been in college for about eight weeks, maybe. And uh, this was before all the kids had cell phones. So an instant message window pops up on my computer. And she says, Dad, I'm sick. And uh, and I, I typed back, that's too bad. And she said, I'm really sick. So being a compassionate dad, I typed, that's really too bad. And uh, and she, she says, what about class? And and being a compassionate dad, a compassionate professor, I said, you should go to class. And then she said, but I'm sick. And I said, well, that's too bad. And and this um, this conversation that we had 
reminded me that uh, she was at a stage in her life where the decision on whether to go to class or not was becoming hers, whereas before that was always uh, my wife and me who made that decision, right? So when she's in fourth grade, she wakes up and says, I don't feel well. We go through the dance that every parent goes through, right? We feel their forehead. We say, okay, why don't you um, – why don't you get dressed and see if you feel better? Uh, why don't you eat some breakfast, see if you feel better? Why don't you get on the bus, see if you feel better? Those sorts of things. Um, and, uh, and, and, and we try to, to help them figure out how, how sick they are. But ultimately, the decision to do that is ours. Uh, Meredith is 27 now, and she never calls us when she's uh, sick about deciding whether she's to go to work or not. She just makes that decision herself because, um, because she has the authority to do that. And while she was in college, that authority was shifting from being external to being internal. And that shift, uh, in this case, it didn't take real long. I think by that spring, she was just making the decision herself, perhaps because I wasn't quite as uh, helpful as she wanted me to be. But, uh, but that's, uh, that's similar to what happens with faith. So for, uh, for young children, for example, the authority for faith is external. Um, even though we're, we're skipping those first couple stages of faith, those uh, children uh, basically uh, do what they see. So they, they model uh, after their parents' faith. So what their parents do, they do. And then as the circle of influence gets bigger, they do what more people do. So teachers and Sunday school teachers and other important people in their lives take on more importance. Uh, they, they get to this place in their life where the connection between a parent and child or between maybe home, church, and child uh, gets interrupted. In many cases, that's because you move away from home. You go to college. And that sense of authority starts to relocate to uh, being internal. And that's, uh, that's what drives a lot of these decisions. They, they didn't really have the choice. Uh, let me rephrase that. Uh, one of the things that I've, I've noticed working with kids for well, a long time, 35 years, is that middle school kids are often really, really excited about their faith. Um, I think one of the reasons why that happens is because they are uh, getting to that point where they are choosing the faith of their parents. So it's like going to a restaurant and handing them a menu. There's one item on it, and you say, I think I'll have this, and you get really excited about it. So, so um, whereas fourth graders are just doing it. They don't think about their faith much because it's like the air. They don't think about the air. Um, middle school kids, young high school kids, they start to think about it, and they make a choice. When that uh, authority is interrupted, they realize that the menu has more items on it, and they start to look critically at uh, the faith that they had previously chosen with a uh, greater or lesser sense of enthusiasm. And that's when that, uh, that four-stage crisis can happen. Right, and I want to start to kind of work that way. I, I want to make one more point here and ask a question, which is Fowler observed that many people, or at least the healthiest point to make this transition from three to four is kind of in the, our young 20s, maybe late teens even for some, and that for those where this happens later in life, it becomes uh, more traumatic for them. And yet Fowler also observed that many people never exit this stage three and, and I see a lot of that. What do we, I mean, it, let me say it this way. It, it's not based on intelligence. It's not based on the amount of awareness that one has of necessarily their surroundings. It's not a matter of how smart one is or how much information one has stored in their brain. Is there any rhyme or reason to why some people stay in stage three for almost their entire lives or perhaps all of it? I think that has to do with uh, the character of the stage three faith that they're in uh, and how much how much wiggle room there is in that faith, and uh, also 
the experiences that they then have after that. So, for example, in um, my book, Helping Our Children Grow in Faith, I talk about uh, a young woman who was uh, convinced that the uh, the Genesis 1 and 2 account was literally true, so that the world was created in six 24-hour days. She went to a public university where uh, the professors uh, said, well, clearly the evidence says that's not the case. And she didn't have the tools to deal with that question, the fact that what she'd heard from her faith was very dogmatic and said, no, this is exactly the way it is. And then her professors at this college said, no, this is exactly the way it is. And so uh, so she was left with uh, without the tools and also probably without the support, right? Because she went back to her home church, which was uh, very dogmatic. They would say, well, they're just wrong. Uh, if she went to a professor at the university, he would say, well, they're just wrong. And that's not helpful. Uh, so had there been someone who could walk along with her and, and ask those questions with her and not just shut down her questions, but actually work on thinking them through, I think that would, would help. So I, I think it's probably situational, right? People find themselves uh, with support. Uh, there's, of course, personal things. Some of us uh, are much more naturally compliant than others. Anybody who's had more than one child knows that there's a range there. Uh, but my, my guess is that it has to do with the, the strictness of, of the, the group that you find yourself in and how they respond to those questions in the first place. Right. So if, if the community is building everything in an either-or paradigm and, and simply pushing back and saying the world is wrong and, and we have all truth here, you're going to find yourself perhaps going along with that. And as long as that, doesn't, that kind of thinking doesn't um, wreck your world at any point, there's no reason to change that. That's right. And, and it's very possible to grow up in, uh, in a bubble that doesn't really change, right? I mean, the, certainly 100 years ago, that was the, the norm. You grew up in a community. You married someone from that community. You stayed in that community. And, uh, and now with our culture, I think uh, we're, much, uh, we're much more likely to run across other people. Uh, that's one of the ironies of, uh, of our current culture, right? Because on the one hand, we're bumping up against other people all the time. But then with the Internet, we can continue to read only the people who agree with us. And so so uh, we've kind of got two things going on at the same time, right? The world is getting smaller, and I can make sure that I only see news that reflects what I want to hear. Um, so I wonder how that's going to shake out in the long run. I don't know. Yeah, that, that is interesting. In, but you're right, though. In our world dynamics today, if we are – looking around and have our eyes open and we're not closing ourselves in, we're going to meet people from various races, ethnicities, uh, different sexual orientations and various kinds of things that perhaps, like you said, a hundred years ago in our small little community, we would have had to have dealt with those things so very little. That's right. And, you know, as, um, as we, we go through our life interacting with people, we're going to come across uh, Muslims who are delightful people. And if, if we've been, uh, raised with the idea that, well, these are the people who are, you know, as, as opposed to us as possible, and then we meet someone who's a very nice person, that's going to make us rethink some things. So as we transition from this stage three into stage four and begin to see that the world doesn't quite fit in this black and white way, and we begin to see that placing all authority outside of ourselves makes us uncomfortable 
and we begin to question things. And let's just assume for a minute we're talking about Mormonism and people are learning a deeper history. People are learning that some of the things that some leaders have said over the course of its history uh, don't turn out to be quite so accurate. There's this there's this thing that happens, which you know we call a faith crisis, we call a dark night of the soul. But essentially, it is this terrible hard moment where one questions everything. And and I was sharing with you in kind of preparation for this that the statistics show that a large chunk of people who leave Mormonism and perhaps Christianity altogether at some point end up kind of at the conclusion of becoming an atheist. And and we don't want that to happen. So the question would be, how do we keep from abandoning abandoning our faith altogether how do we how do we maintain some level of belief in god and in the divine and and try to work these things out and, and accept them as more nuanced well I, I think it's something that um that as as church leaders we uh, it, it's really helpful for us to reinforce uh, especially with young people that uh, real christians ask questions um in uh, in genesis we read about jacob wrestling with the angel. And, uh, and at the end of that story, he gets a new name, Israel, which means uh, he wrestles with God. What I find interesting is that for the other people who get new names in Scripture, we typically refer to them by their new name after they get that new name. So the apostle Paul is not called Saul once he gets the new name Paul. Uh, Abraham is not called Abram once he gets the name Abraham. But Jacob continues to be called Jacob. Uh, but Israel is the name that was given to his descendants, to God's people. So God named his people, they wrestle with me. He didn't name them, they always do what I say. He named them, they wrestle with me. I think that's a message that young people need to hear. Uh, that's, uh, that's, I think, the message of the book of Job, that, uh, that God wants us to talk with him. Uh, and if we, uh, if we give a, a message of here's the way it is, period, don't ask questions, then when uh, when young people start asking questions, if we've given them a faith that doesn't work, the only reasonable alternative is to say this doesn't work and to walk away. And it's I think it's um, I think you really need people around them to say, well, you know what, I have questions, too. And even to articulate some of those questions, to say, you know, here are things that I don't I just don't make sense to me sometimes. I just don't get this. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you one. Um, my mom is 94. She is in a nursing home. She has been pretty much non-responsive for a year and a half. It's, it's now November as we're doing this. She has been under hospice care for nearly a year and a half. A year and a half ago, my brother and I got a call that said, this is, this is it. Uh, we're in the last days. We've gotten that call two more times since then, and she's still just lying there. No quality of life. I don't get that. I don't understand why God allows that to happen. But at the same time, there are children who are getting cancer diagnoses. I have a hard time making sense out of that. So when I spend a lot of time thinking about those sorts of things and and wondering, uh, I am grateful that my faith doesn't depend on me figuring out the answer to that question. And I believe that God is okay with me saying to him, what are you doing? This doesn't make any sense. Um, and sometimes the answer I get is, yeah, I know it doesn't make any sense. I'm still with you. Um, that's, that's the sort of thing that young people need to hear so that when they have these questions, they know that they can ask them of, of their pastors, of their friends, can ask them of God and still be in. That doesn't mean you're severing communication. It's like in a family, right? When my kids uh, say to me, uh, especially when they were younger, right, and I was actually, you know, 
making, uh, ask them to do things. Now that they're older, it's a different relationship, of course. But they would say, why do I have to do that? Well, that first of all, I wanted them to ask that in the right attitude. But I'd rather that they talk to me rather than just walk away and not say anything. Because as long as we're talking, we have a relationship. So I appreciate that a lot. And, and I think stage four can really be a hard time. And I, and I get it. All of these stages to some extent are transitional, but I think more so than any other stage, stage four is not meant for someone to stay in forever. It, it is something that one really, if they're there for too long, they're going to begin just beating themselves up and, and get angry at the world. And, uh, and I think about this idea of stage four to stage five, and, and I'll just share with you from my perspective, looking over Fowler, looking at the way you pose these stages. I've got one foot firmly in stage five, but I still have a foot that's solid in stage four. And some things I've worked out really well, and some things I'm still frustrated and angry about in terms of my relationship with my faith or with God. And, and I guess I'm asking you, are there, are there certain tools or, or things that we could do that help us to perhaps transition from stage four and land in stage five as softly as possible? Well, um, I'm, I'm perhaps not as convinced as you are that stage four is not a place where you can be for a while. And I'm not sure it's necessarily so uncomfortable because it, it doesn't have to be questioning all the time. But what it can also is an idea that I want to construct my own version of this faith. And so what, what I see is uh, young people who want to throw off a lot of the traditional church things. Uh, and, and in fact, I see many churches that are constructed for people like that. They, um, they, they want to do away with all the old hymns. They don't want to have liturgies. They want to just sort of, they want to be real. I did a research project on uh, chapels in Christian high schools. And one of the chapel leaders said, my students are connoisseurs of authenticity. Uh, and I thought that was a great line, and I've been thinking about it for five years now. I'm still not sure what it means. But I think it means that if the kids think that the person who's leading chapel is not real, then they check out. And that's, um, that's what, what stage four is about. It's, it's the idea that real has to somehow kick against the establishment. And so that kicking against the establishment can, of course, become its, new, its own establishment later on. But I'm not sure it's necessarily uncomfortable. It's just uh, just the way things are. All rock and roll was built on that whole that whole idea of kicking against the establishment. It's been going strong for 50 years now. Um, so uh, so the the transition from stage four to stage five, I think, uh, happens partly with uh, maturity, partly with growth, partly with perhaps um, realizing that you still don't have the answer to some of these questions, but that's not as bad as you thought it was. I, I went through a, a period in my life in my uh, my late 20s where I was determined to figure out uh, how uh, the science that I was uh, was reading and uh, what I read in Genesis could fit together. And uh, and I was reading all sorts of stuff. And I was I mean, I, I wasn't miserable all the time, but I was arrogant enough to think that I could figure it out where, you know, clearly uh, thousands of years of other people still working on it, that didn't occur to me that I couldn't figure this out myself. And, uh, and I, I read in the psalm that, uh, that God wanted me just to, to be still and to, to, to rest in him. And it was, it was uh, one of those moments where I thought, wow, I don't have to figure this out. It's, it's a mystery, uh, something that I, I write, actually write about quite a bit in uh, helping our children grow in faith, the idea that we need to, to give kids permission to dwell in the mystery of God and, uh, and as adults, if we're telling kids, uh, 
uh, let, let me let me not say telling kids. If as adults we are giving kids the idea that we have all the information about God and they just have to learn what we learn, they'll have it figured out too. And that's that's a mistake. Uh, as I got comfortable with that, I became more and more uh, comfortable, and I sort of just grew into recognizing that some of these things that I thought were inauthentic as a 25-year-old were actually uh, wonderfully rich and deep. And so uh, in my 20s, I thought liturgy was boring. Now I think it is uh, grounding, uh, where I thought uh, hymns were, were dull and too wordy. Now I think they're theologically rich, uh, where I, I thought uh, ser- some sermons were too long and didn't have enough application. Now I see that they open up scripture to me in ways that I wasn't seeing before. And so, uh, so I, I think it's a, it's a growth and a maturation thing and something that happens, again, if you're in a community that values these things and, uh, and encourages people to ask questions together. I like that. And I, and I would add, you know, I, I know, you know, maybe my listeners didn't pick up on this, but obviously you're not a member of the, the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints. We, in the intro, we talked about, uh, your religious background. And, but I think Mormonism is beginning to do that. It's, it's beginning to kind of say, okay, guys, we don't have all the answers. We're still searching things out. Yes, our history is more complicated than, than we, than the way we taught it in simple terms in church. And I think it's beginning to kind of grow up. And I look around at a lot of other churches and they've had a lot longer to do this, whether, whether one is coming from a, a Catholic or Lutheran background or a Protestant church, which in some ways is still borrowing from that history. Uh, there's been just a lot of years, a lot of generations to work out some of the complexities of faith and, and Mormonism being pretty new is, is beginning to tackle this. I, uh, I do want to ask you stage five of what Fowler talks about and what you talk about in the article of ages and stages. Uh, I want to maybe get a feel from you what you think stage five looks like. And the reason I ask this, many of the listeners are going to very much see themselves as being in stage four and they're, they're curious in what ways things will change in order for them to, to land in this stage five. And, and I get it. There's really no, no recipe on how to get from one stage to another. Like you said, we just have to live it through experience. But what does stage five look like? Um, one of the, one of the ways that I see it and, uh, and I, I think I'm probably a, a stage five guy. I'm old enough now that if I'm not now, I probably am not going to get there. But, um, but for, for me, one of the differences was when I was younger, I would look at uh, things from other uh, denominations, uh, other other uh, expressions of the Christian faith. And uh, in a sense, I would, in my mind at least, run over there. Oh, this is cool. I need to experience this. Or, um, or no, that's absolutely wrong. No, I, I couldn't possibly go there. And um, now I can explore it and experience it without losing where I am. So, uh, so for example, I, uh, when I grew up, uh, you know, 50 years ago or so, uh, I was one of thousands, perhaps millions of Protestants who were told that, uh, Roman Catholics weren't like us. Uh, that I don't think, uh, anyone ever said outright they're not Christians, but they came just short of that. And, and we were uh, raised to think that we were two in two completely different streams. Um, now I, I don't think that's the case. I think we've got all, an awful lot in common. I, I count um, Catholics as brothers and sisters in Christ. And there are many things that I have learned and will continue to learn from the way the Catholic Church does things. There are some things that I have disagreements with them about. But, uh, but the way I can approach um, my Catholic brothers and sisters now is a much different way than I could when I was uh, 
you know, in stage three or stage two, certainly, or stage three or in stage four. Now I can uh, embrace them without fear that I'm going to lose where I am. Gotcha. And and I appreciate that as well. I think that we just, and it's kind of what you speak to, it's this ability to become comfortable with those that are different than you, with parts of your faith being different than perhaps your own perspective. It's it's just growing comfortable with the nuance that's around you. It's just realizing that, sorry, but nothing's ever going to be simple and, and that we all have to kind of wrestle with these these things, as you pointed out earlier. That's right. And and it's, um, I, uh, when I talk to my students about uh, different world religions, it's one of the things that, that we talk about in my course. Uh, because many students are going to go on to teach in public schools. We're going to have, uh, have kids who represent lots of different world religions. I, uh, I caution them not to uh not to sort of go to the oh well, we're we're all alike we're just all after the same thing it's it's not that sort of uh wishy-washy uh neutrality but it is uh, saying okay we need to to respect and and learn from these folks i also tell them that i have little patience for people who who criticize other people for thinking that they're right uh we all think we're right and if we didn't think we were right we would change our mind until we did the trick is not to be arrogant about it and to think that you're never going to change your mind. And so um, maybe maybe that's what uh, what stage five does for me. It allows me to be secure in the fact that I, I know what theology is that I believe and that I'm willing to learn from others um, and continue to grow in that without being threatened by it. Good, good. I, I want to throw maybe just a, a question at you that will give you a chance to maybe, and I don't mean it in a negative way, but stand on your soapbox for a moment and give us some some thoughts. I, I would very much say that many religions, and I would throw Mormonism into that box, teach at very much a stage three level. And I think some faiths are even going to have a harder time at this, and I think Mormonism is one of those because it, it holds on to some truth claims, and those truth claims essentially make it kind of a black and white paradigm to see things in. Either it is true or it isn't on those on those certain claims. So we talk about this idea that, you know, you mentioned earlier there's some churches out there that work kind of at a stage four level. Are are there any churches out there that are teaching at what you would call a stage five where there's that much comfortability with nuance besides perhaps the Unitarian Church? Uh yeah, I think there are. Now my bias is going to show here, obviously, because um I uh, am in the, the Christian Reformed Church, which is part of the Reformed family of churches. Uh, Presbyterians are also Reformed, so that's that's maybe a name that uh, your listeners might recognize. There's certainly a, a larger group than uh, than Reformed folks. And, uh, and it's, while it's possible to do Reformed theology in a very dogmatic way, it's also very possible to do it in a very winsome way and to uh, to to see that. Uh, that the world belongs to God. And that's one of the things that, that Calvin College really emphasizes, that this whole world is God's world. It's not that it belongs to, uh, there are not two worlds. There's not the, the, uh, the secular world and the sacred world. It's all one world and it's all God's world. So that means that we can uh, not only study religion and theology, we can study psychology and biology. We can study um, uh, literature. We can study literature written by Christians and we can study literature written by non-Christians because we believe that these non-Christians even can reflect some of God's truth. And so we want to discern that. It doesn't mean that we just we just say, oh, it's all good. But what we're saying is uh, is that that God, there's not one square inch. This is quoting Abraham Kuyper, not one square inch where God does not say this is mine. And so uh, that sort of theology to me 
uh, allows a very stage five look at things. Now, that doesn't dictate a particular worship style. So we've got some churches in our denomination that are very formal and uh, very liturgical. We've got others that are very informal and very um, uh, very casual. We, but one of the things that is central, or at least ought to be central, is uh, the experience of uh, gathering around the table of the Lord together, uh, gathering around the baptismal font together, and of hearing the Word of God preached uh, in, a, in a way that's both that both shows that God's Word has uh, historical particularity and eternal relevance. Uh, and so, so I think stage five churches are, are very possible. I think I belong to one. Um, that doesn't mean that as one of the leaders of that church, I always do it in a stage five way. Sometimes I can make a mistake and try and be a little bit more dogmatic than perhaps I ought to be. But I think it can be done well. And, uh, and yeah, I'd like to in- encourage your listeners to, to look for those places or maybe make sure the places they are there become those places. Beautiful. I uh, I want to finish off just maybe giving a plug for you. Uh, you were talking before we got started, before we started recording, about an article that you just uh, you and your wife just released. Uh, it looks like it's at www.lifelongfaith.com, and then it's the most recent journal there. Uh, it looks like an article titled "Building Blocks of Faith." Uh, give us a little feel for that. Thanks for asking about that. So after uh, many years of, of talking about these uh, stages that James Fowler developed. Um, about uh, two or three years ago, my wife and I were challenged by an organization from our denomination uh, uh, who has a kids radio program. And they said, so, yeah, it's, it's nice that these stages are here, but what do kids need? And that was a question that uh, that we thought was really fascinating. Uh, what what do people need to grow in their faith? And so we uh, we did some reading and some thinking and some talking and uh, and doing this sort of scholarship with my wife is is great because uh, we get some of our best stuff done on, in the car on the way to Chicago visiting one of our daughters or or you know um, sitting around the house that sort of thing we we talk a lot about these things and uh, and we uh, came up with a list of four things uh, the first one is I belong the second one is I know. Uh, the third is I have hope, and the fourth is I am called and equipped. And so, uh, so first of all, a sense of belonging. Uh, we see that coming out strongly in baptism. I, I think that Mormons do as well. Um, I know. I, I think there has to be a a cognitive component. We have to know what our faith is. We, if we don't know what our faith is, then we don't really know what we believe. Third, I have hope. Uh, hope in uh, in our world today is. Uh, synonymous with the word wish, uh, hope in scripture is not. Hope is assurance that God has uh, good things in store for us and that the kingdom is uh, is coming and is being rebuilt. And then finally, not only is the kingdom coming, but we have a particular place in that kingdom. We have been called by God to do particular work. We are equipped by God to do that work. Uh, I sometimes think about my life as a middle school kid. Um, everybody's life as a middle school kid is somewhat traumatic. Mine certainly was, you know, I got picked on, uh, didn't have nearly as many friends as I thought I should have, all of those things. Uh, that gave me an insight into the kids that I taught when I was a middle school teacher. And it gives me insight into, um, to allow me to tell, help my students who are going to be middle school teachers, to let them see uh, the inner life of those kids. God equipped me to do this work that I'm doing now, and he calls me to do this work. Uh, and I'm assisting in building up the kingdom of God. That's exciting. Um, 
And so in this article, we not only outline those four things, but then we say uh, in your church ministries, how do you help people of all ages uh, in those four areas? So not only do children need to know that they belong, not only do they need to get information about their faith, but senior citizens do, too. And so that's um, it's exciting because that article is uh, even though it's just been out for a week or so. Uh, preview copies that has gotten gotten some some good attention from folks in our denomination, and it might be uh, steering the way that our denomination starts to think about helping churches uh, build their ministries. Really cool, really cool. I know that you've also written a book. I've got it pulled up here, uh, helping our children grow in faith. I think this would be a, a kind of a nice book for those who are listening to the podcast who are wondering maybe how to raise their children in a way that they can transition through these stages in a healthy way. Would you mind telling us where people can find that? Well, it's on Amazon, and it's often really cheap. So, um, so that's a good place. It's also on Kindle, and so uh, yeah, that would be that'd be great. It's uh, it. It was a lot of fun doing that book. It just has my name, my name on it, but uh, almost everything that, that I write has my wife's input. So this one has, just has my name on it, though. Gotcha. I'll make sure that uh, on the link to this episode that uh, there's a link there for people who want to uh, perhaps purchase the book. They can click there and get right to it. Robert Keeley, I appreciate so much you being on. I appreciate the time you've taken uh, to help those who who are dealing with these these transitions from one stage to another, uh, your input in counsel and helping us to do so smoothly. Thank you so much for being on today. Thanks for inviting me, Bill. Let's go.